0: Hello friends! Welcome to Le Vital Corps Salon. I'm Cara Snyder. I'm your host. I'm your salonière, as they would probably say in 17th or 18th century France. And I am here to offer some sonic comfort and conversation for women who don't have time for bullshit or burnout. Are you someone who's ever looked at leadership in your government or your workplace or really any other organization you contribute your time and energy to and thought, hmm, I don't see a lot of women in the ranks of leadership up in here? If you've ever observed that, I can't wait to introduce you to today's guest, Jessica Grounds. I got to meet Jessica when we both spoke at the Professional Women Controllers Conference earlier this year. And truth be told, I was so bummed when I looked at the schedule and saw that both of us were leading our breakout sessions at the exact same time in adjacent rooms. Thankfully, I caught her in the hotel lobby before she scooted for the day and asked her about potentially dropping by Core Salon. Before I introduce you to Jessica and her work, do I have any overachievers in this here salon? Were you that kid like me who worked extra hard for a sticker, a pencil eraser, possibly a cookie in grade school? Well, my overachieving friends, this growing podcast could really use a smidge of your energy to power it. Here are two ways that you can help that are free and easy and fast. One, please subscribe to La Core Salon wherever you listen to podcasts. Two. If you think of someone that you know while you're listening to this conversation with Jessica, please share this podcast with them. Most podcast apps now have a share feature, or you can text a link to the show notes found over at LeVitalCourseSalon.com. L E Vital, C O R P S, Salon.com. To those of you listeners who have been sharing the podcast, I just want to say, Big, huge, capital-lettered, made out of titanium. Thank you. It's working. Podcast downloads have been steadily growing month after month. This means that together we are helping other women slay bullshit and sidestep burnout. Thank you. Okay, okay. Back to introducing you to Jessica. Since landing in Washington, D.C. at age 22, Jessica Grounds has been busting her rump to help women become leaders in public life. She has founded and led multiple organizations across public and now private sectors to advance women in leadership. Today, we're going to learn all about the strategic, gender-inclusive, and bipartisan work she's doing with Mind the Gap. In this conversation, Jessica is also going to pull from her experience as the founder and former executive director of Running Start, years of facilitating leadership training for women, and her two master's degrees to help us more fully understand the barriers facing women in the workplace and beyond. More importantly, Jessica and I are going to talk about the practical and realistic steps we can all take within our own organizations starting immediately. And I know with the midterm elections coming up, I felt like this was such an important conversation to be having, and I hope you agree. Voila! Here's the interview with Jessica. Hey, Jessica, welcome to the Vital Core Salon.
1: Hi, Kara. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so thrilled to be here.
0: This is going to be a an exciting and interesting conversation. I feel like it's really meta, right? Like I'm here trying to amplify what women are doing, and then I'm amplifying your work helping women.
1: <laughs> well, yes, I think that's a great way of saying it. I know, right? I get to like really work to help get more awesome women like many of your listeners to actually be in leadership, and I feel grateful that's my my life's path. And I'm excited to be here. Thanks for talking to
0: me. Of course, of course. And you are someone who is fiercely devoted to advancing women leaders in public life and beyond. When did you realize this was what you were meant to do?
1: Uh, So great question. Something I've I talk about a lot, actually, I do a lot of speaking to young women in my work and women of all ages, really. But uh, my life story and how I got into this was I grew up in California and went to college in Los Angeles and was always actually really interested in politics from an early age, which sounds strange, I think. Maybe today, I don't know, is even more of interest. But I think back then it was kind of unusual. But I um, was in college and I was a a political science major at Pepperdine in Los Angeles, and for one of my classes, I had to work on my first political campaign. It was one of the requirements of my class, and it was for a woman candidate. Um, I actually chose to work um, for this uh, local candidate um, who was a woman, and it was a really cool experience for me because I think it was the most—it was very experiential, where I was like learning about it in school, and then I actually got to do this hands-on experience and this woman was running for the assembly in California and I got really involved in the race. I was 19 years old, 20 years old at the time. Basically, I realized that when you're in politics, really so many of these campaigns, they run on the energy of young people and also on volunteers. And so I really got to do a lot of high-level things early and actually one really funny story is I actually threw a fundraiser at a nudist colony, which is a very odd <laughs> I mean, it was in Malibu, so it's not that odd, maybe, but um, it was a fundraiser for this candidate. Things go differently in in California politics, but really beyond getting to see that politics was this great energy and place where I could really use my skill set at an early age and grow my abilities, um, I realized there were very few women like Fran Pavley, this candidate I was working for that that were in politics, meaning I realized there were very few women who were in elected office. And I was studying this in college, but I really started to recognize, hey, this is a big issue. If women's voices aren't shaping not only policy, but thinking about what the agenda is of what's important for a town or city or state or country to care about, what does that mean? What are all those ramifications? And so I started to study that in college through this experience and um, working on a campaign. And I actually moved to Washington, D.C. at 22, I literally had two suitcases. I knew nobody in the town. I had interned here, but I just, and I fell in love with Washington, D.C. But I decided I was going to do what I could to try to find a career in, at 22 in Washington, D.C. And I had all the intentions of working on Capitol Hill and working for a member of Congress, and even had an interview one of the first days I was here for the congresswoman from my hometown in San Diego. But none of those things worked out. And those are a lot longer stories. But I, what happened to me was I found out when I moved here early I, through a listserv um, that there was a young woman running for Congress. And she was 27. And uh, she was having a fundraiser here in D.C. And so I said, gosh, I'd really love to meet this young woman. She was just a few years older than me. And so I went to a bar on Capitol Hill where this event was, and I literally had my Oprah aha moment at 22, and I'm walking up the stairs of this bar, and there's a sign that says Women Under 40 Political Action Committee. And I literally had this sort of epiphany, oh, this is what I'm going to do the rest of my life. I'm going to help get women to become leaders. I literally remember that. And um, basically, that kind of was the genesis of my career, and I have now led and um, founded a number of organizations to inspire, in particular, young women to run for elected office um, early in my work. And that work has evolved into my work today, which I know we'll talk about in a little bit, but uh, which works with women of all ages and all backgrounds, particularly in business and politics. But my real core goal and what I strive for every day is for everyone to see men and women that our world And our country won't be as great as it could be. We're not going to tackle the big issues that we need to tackle unless more women are in leadership. And so that's kind of my story of how I got into my work.
0: Got it. So when you walked into this bar and you see a 27-year-old woman running for Congress, I mean, was she a unicorn at that point?
1: Totally. That's a great point. Yeah. So um, this organization, my my good friend who I worked with for a number of years, Susanna Welford, had started a couple of years before, was on Capitol Hill all the time. And she was realizing there were so few, not only women as staff members for members of Congress, but there were so few young women in those roles. And there were so few women as, uh, in particular, running for office. And when you actually still look at trajectory of women candidates, so... And obviously, that's a big year here, 2018. Everyone's talking about this sort of new year of the woman. But um, what we tend to see is women are still to this day, even with the upswing in women running, women are only about a fourth of political candidates. So if you look at all of the candidates running, women are only about a quarter to a third, depending on the election. Um, So we had a dearth of women running as a whole. But then particularly, young women weren't running. Women were tending, and still this is true, but we're trying to change this, um, and it's changing a bit women were tending to run after they had children and a career and they felt like they were more, okay, I've done that. Now I can go back and, you know, give to my community and, and run for office. And so what my work has been doing for a number of years was to say, Hey, young women, we really need your voices. And there's a couple reasons. One, if you think about women under the age of 40, all the experiences that they're having, having children, building their career is a huge piece, growing in their sort of expertise, all these, um, but also just the challenges that are experienced by younger women were basically not being addressed in so many ways within the policy making in Congress because their voices weren't there. And the other dimension that really that's really important to it, and it's not just about, oh, we're only caring about younger women, but it's actually about power and seniority. So the way that Congress works, the longer you've been there, the more power you have to actually dictate what comes up. So if you look at The chairman or the chairwomen of of committees on Capitol Hill. We have very few women at this, actually we have none in the House because um, uh, uh, the Republicans have a lot fewer women actually in their delegation than Democrats. Um, The problem is, is that you, if you haven't been there a long time, you're not going to be in those positions of leadership. So we thought, hey, let's support all these younger women through this organization, this political action committee, which funds young women candidates. And so that organization that I helped to lead and grow for a number of years was wonderful. But we realized really that the cart was before the horse. And that sort of led into my next phase of my work, which is an organization called Running Start, which I co-founded 11 years ago and that whole idea was actually to inspire young women to run high school and college because what we we're realizing was there weren't a lot of young women candidates actually doing it that 27 year old i met at the bar she was like you said a unicorn she was one in a maybe 10 in an election cycle if that uh, so that we really realize that we need to continue to inspire a generation of younger women to actually say, "Hey, leadership politics is for you. We need you. If you don't do it, who will?" We're going, and we really need your voices in this um, important work.
0: Because here's something I want to bring in, especially while we're talking about Running Start, is I'm not a mom yet, but I spend enough time around friends' children, and I see, you know, even kindergarten, first grade, second grade maybe even like third or fourth grade, they have this notion of possibility that seems limitless, Mm -hmm. right? Like you hear them talk and they're going to be astronauts and they're going to be presidents and they're going to run companies and they're going to be sales executives. Yeah, some of my friend's kids are funny. (laughs) Um, It's great. You know, they have all these like dreams and then something happens. Did you experience or witness that at all with Running Start?
1: Right. Yeah. So, uh, a lot of our genesis was around some research that had been done by a number of different kind of researchers and avenues. Mm -hmm. Some of the work was done by the Girl Scouts. They've done a really great job in the last ten years or so to really pivot towards more of a leadership dynamic in terms of teaching their young women. But what we were seeing in some of the research was, to your point girls and boys were advancing at very similar rates through elementary school and junior high and around high school, they were also doing so, but it started to step back where girls weren't taking on as many leadership roles. And it really started to stagnate in college. And then the other piece of research we looked at was Jennifer Lawless, who was at Americans Women in Politics Institute here in Washington, DC, and now is um, at University of Virginia. But she and her Co-author Richard Fox had written work on uh, the fact that women didn't see themselves as qualified to lead in the same way men did, even with the same credentialing and background. So that was a really important piece of research. She also looked at some of the ambition um, gaps of younger women. And there were a lot of issues around this sort of high school to college time frame where Girls weren't, and young women weren't talking about politics as much. They weren't talking about leadership as much in their social circles compared to men. They weren't encouraged as much by their parents to pursue those sort of leadership um, experiences. They were dissuaded more often, which we see in a lot of facets for women in leadership is the dissuasion factor, if you will, of different people of power, not even colleagues, peers, dissuading women from trying to you know, become a leader. And another interesting point we also see is is, is actually competitive sports. Girls still in high school play fewer competitive sports than boys, although we're a lot better in this country. I do a lot of work internationally compared to other places. And that's a really, really strong correlation between uh, learning how to fail, learning how to lose, being on a team, all the teamwork stuff you learn in competitive sports, and that translating to your confidence and your um, willingness to want to lead later in your in your life. And so anyway, all of these different dynamics help to shape the idea that we would talk to high school girls about leading in politics. And I would also, another dynamic I think of this is that is important for your listeners here is we weren't necessarily finding high school girls and saying, hey, don't you want to be the next president first? You know, that wasn't the right first
0: question. <laughs> it's, <laughs> Especially a little, right now. <laughs> it's a little daunting. And we see yeah. what happened in 2016. Right,
1: exactly. It's like, woohoo. Um, you're like, hmm, I'm not sure about that. But what we did instead was to say, hey, we know you're a leader in your community. Or we were identifying girls who were, we would actually ask a couple questions. I should be really clear about this. We would ask, What have you seen in your community that you want to change? And what have you done about it? So we would get really personal to them.
0: Oh, brilliant. And we would
1: find, right, that they saw something they didn't like and that they showed an appetite for change or they showed that, hey, well, I saw that this wasn't good. And so this is what I did. I started a nonprofit or I started raising money for my local food bank or whatever the case was. So, we were identifying leaders or girls who had this penchant for changing the bad stuff they saw, and then brought them to Washington, D.C. And we still do this program since 2007. And over a week, they get exposed to leaders. So, the two main things we do is leadership introduction or women who have led, so they see role models, and then skills building. And so, that program has existed since 2007. We started with 20 high school girls in 2007. The first year, that was a great success. The next year, we got 300 applicants for our, yeah, and we expanded to 50 girls the next year. The crazy story is in 2009, right after the 2008 election, right, we had, and I would just say, very different looking people run for president, right? We had now President Barack Obama. We had Senator, at the time, Senator Hillary Clinton, and we had Sarah Palin, vice president. So vice presidential candidates. You had all these different looking people than typically were running for president or vice president. And we had 30,000 applications to the program.
0: Oh my God.
1: Yeah. So it was... (laughs) ridiculous and it was at my colleague Susanna's house and it was like a little pre I mean there were a lot of electronic submissions but also paper still and this poor mailman was like coming to her house with boxes when is this going to end like this was just like these girls all over the country were like I want to lead it was so great so so we kind of blew up that year in terms of our interest and um, a number of things happened and I was able to pull in some really big sort of corporate donors, which is a whole another dimension of work I'm doing today now. But, uh, but it was exciting to see this sort of I, interest in aha moment among the girls that, Hey, this is something I want to do too. I'm running start. And I'd let it for a number of years and sit on the board of directors still, but um, we've trained over 15,000 girls and young women. So high school and college level women, Uh, to see themselves as leaders in politics. So it's really exciting to see the story and the arc of that work.
0: This is so amazing to hear. Like, I feel like my heart just exploded open when you were talking about (laughs) that.
1: (laughs) Thank you. It is, I feel very honored to have been a part of it, but also um, it's exciting to see actually people coming around to really care about this work we've been fighting for for so long. It's like, oh, finally, people are paying attention, you know, so...
0: I want to ask, because this was back in 2009, Right. what have you seen come out of that? Because I imagine literally you're getting a running start, but there is a tail for this, right? From like when a girl is 16 or 17 years old to when they actually start running for office.
1: Right. Well, I mean, in terms of our high school and college women from running start, we did a number of surveys early on and we saw that 60 to 70% of them, depending on the cohort, were more likely to take on a leadership role within their school or um, be interested in taking on a political leadership role. So we definitely saw that immediate sort of interest and increase in sort of an appetite to want to lead after the program, which was great. And since then, we've had, I mean, amazing stories of women run. We had a young woman who is in the state legislature in Illinois. We have uh, women who've run for local office, uh, school board. I mean, it's really pretty incredible to see kind of where that 10 years later has taken us. And then it kind of bleeds into this. And, and also just, um, the stories these young women are telling, I think, and sharing online. I think that was the one thing I often talk about with leadership, especially in politics, but also in business. Like it can feel very lonely. Like you're the only one out there doing it. And I think one thing we've really tried to do is create a context for them to physically meet each other, but also continue this online through, you know, Facebook and keep connected where they're sharing, oh, I experienced this or that. And so that's been a really exciting thing. Um, Some of the sad parts of it, though, are that we have seen this sort of change in, the problems and the barriers they're experiencing. So we don't like to dwell, and a lot of my work, I don't like to dwell just on the barriers, but it's important for women to know the barriers of why there are a lack of women in positions of leadership in all different places. So I talk about that a lot. Um, but one of the barriers that was starting to happen, and particularly to our, our young women, and you see, you've see you seen this in the news, is really the kind of violent attack against them. So it manifests yes. itself differently in different parts of the world. Um, in fact, in other parts of the world, sadly, we see physical violence. Where I worked with a number of the women in Lesotho, which is in Southern Africa. And uh, I brought together all of the women from the different political parties. And one of the women I actually... Had had been part of this connection. She actually got shot for running for office.
0: Oh my goodness. In
1: yeah, I mean, just horrific stuff. Here in the US, uh, while gr- gratefully we don't see necessarily physical violence in person, although you have, you've seen things like what happened to Gabby Giffords, the congresswoman from Arizona. Yes. Um, we see a lot more verbal and sexually oriented attacks online to the young women. We're talking about. High school, college, really, you know, young professional women putting themselves out there as, hey, I want to do good for my community, whatever that is, from left to right in the middle, we are a bipartisan group, and they would get attacked. And so that became a place where we could be a place of support for them and help them work through that and think about strategies. So um, I think that kind of piece is really important.
0: This is so much to take in all at once because I and I feel like we are in such a rapid, unpredictable period for women. It's frightening to think that a teenage or a young woman is getting shot at for just simply stepping up.
1: Right. Yeah. I know. It's pretty sad. It's pretty, it's really, I think, a visceral experience. And What's interesting now too, is I think it's interesting in my work. I think a lot of times people feel, actually this woman said to me just a couple days ago, she was like, yeah, it's almost like we were asleep for 30 years and we're finally waking up. (laughs) And I was like, "Hmm, interesting. But point was that we gained all these rights sort of within the women's movement in the sixties and seventies, mostly around legal rights. Right. And then we sort of were like, okay, well we're good now. And then Sort of reality has sort of struck, and obviously, Me Too and Time's Up and everything around sexual violence is a very, um, I think it's a very overt and aggressive example, a very real example of what is impacting women um, and girls and young women. But there's all these other dimensions underlying that that are not as overt, that are really problematic. And we sort of just said, oh, you know, this has all been taken care of. And I think it's been easier for us to wipe the sexual harassment piece or issues impacting women uniquely under the rug compared to some of the other sort of challenges that we, we tend to talk about and tackle. Um, and I don't know what that's about. It's a it's a really big problem, I think, that we are almost like more okay with sexism than other things.
0: It's funny, because the women that I roll with, we are not okay with sexism, right? And I think probably a lot of the women you roll with as well.
1: Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. I mean, so fundamental to sort of who we should be as Americans, I think, and as good people, obviously. But it's a really, it's a real conversation right now.
0: And it's interesting, because that kind of violence against women, especially the cyber violence and the cyber bullying is starting at an increasingly younger age. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Do you find that affects women that are thinking of running or are are coming to the Running Start program? I mean, have they already experienced that sort of attack? And are they, I hate to say, weathered to it?
1: Yes, great question. So um, this is not Running Start's program, but I have a new kind of company and focus in my work now. And I was in Tokyo this summer where I was able to train uh the first women to run for office in Japan, which was super exciting. They'd actually never had a training program like we put together kind of this weekend simulation campaign training for women who are interested in leading in politics in the in the country. And one of uh, the very first night I was there, we had given my business partner Kristen Hafford and I had given a presentation about who we are and why we do our work. And we were having a cocktail hour and a young woman came up to me who was in college And this was through an interpreter um, because most of the people are speaking Japanese and I was speaking English. um, (laughs) And she said um, that she was experiencing bullying and um, horrible sort of comments made to her because she had been very vocal. Not only about Me Too, but just about women's leadership that, hey, Japan will be a lot better place if we have more women also making these important decisions. And Japan is actually quite um, abysmal in their numbers. Not that the U.S. is so much better, because I think people don't realize how few women we have leading our, our, especially our political systems, but also business. But Japan's uh, diet, their parliament, is only 10% female. And women are only about 10%, 10% of business leaders. And so she was Oof. just giving me that, yeah, right? In 2018, 10%, 90% of these bodies of leadership are, are, are men. And it's it's pretty interesting how it's, it's bad. So um, she was just sharing that it was very real for her. And she was asking me for strategies to overcome it. She wasn't saying, I'm not going to do this now because... I'm having this experience. She was like, what do I do about it? Like, let's fix this. You know, (laughs) what I tend to see with young women is just really, um, they want to make this change. They're so positive about it in the face of difficult pieces, but we see a lot of barriers, regardless of age. Absolutely. A big issue is being, putting yourself out there, fearing kind of, uh, your family being attacked, you being attacked, that personal piece, um, which which can a be really real. Sometimes I think is overstated in part because you tend to see sort of like the presidential election or or a high level office where a lot of eyes are on it. In reality, a lot of offices are much smaller and less sort of sort of focused on. Although I think social media again has really changed that. It makes you know all politics is local, but it makes things um, every race a little bit more. Um, available, which is a good thing, but also you have to contend with this sort of um, challenge. But we see barriers. So women not feeling as qualified, women not feeling like politics is a place and an avenue for change. They felt like it's just corrupt. It's dirty. We have all this, you have to raise all this money. This isn't a great way of doing about it. Can I make change in other ways? They tend not to have role models. They tend not to have, understand how to navigate the structure of it. Uh, and what we, we tend to see is women, women will not be as connected to sort of the networks that are necessary to often run for office. There is a bit of that um, kingmaker, queenmaker in a lot of parts of the country in, in politics where you have to know the right people to get there. And they tend to be inspired to run because they have a traffic, you know, a highway going through their backyard and like, this isn't okay. You know, we need to fix this. Um, that's how... Um, actually Barbara Mikulski, the former Senator of Maryland, got into politics. as She was pad because there was going to be a highway put through her backyard. So you have all of these personal experiences that women are inspired to go, but they run into all these barriers. So while statistically we see women are just as likely to be elected as men from a statistical standpoint, the roadmap or the road in the Challenge and the barriers to actually become that candidate is so much bigger. And that's why all of these efforts that I've been involved with and more, you know, to inspire, to encourage, to support is so much more important for women. It's just a very different calibration.
0: Got it. And Jessica, let's talk about where you are working right now with Mind the Gap.
1: Well, in full candor, so I left Running Start to go work for Hillary's, um, there was a big organization called Ready for Hillary, Hillary Clinton. I, by the way, for all of you Republicans out there, am married to a Republican, so I'm one of those bipartisan (laughs) people. I'm a Democrat. My husband's a Republican He worked on capitol hill for a number of republican members and so we make it work so i love republicans i love democrats i love everybody um i just <laughs> wanted to put that out there
0: <laughs> conversations um, and watching the news in your house must be hilarious oh yeah some days
1: yeah we don't let fox news on though we tell it this you know the tv smokes i say if that happens but <laughs> maybe fox <laughs> business that's okay um <laughs> although yeah anyway there's a lot to be said about that whole thing um, but I, I, left to go, uh, help kind of some early efforts to encourage Hillary to run for the second time for president, which of course she did. I didn't join the official campaign, but did a lot of work to engage women early and, um, get more support for her and for her to see that we needed her to run. So, um, I left my full-time position as, um, executive director and co-founder of Running Start to do that work. And then after, uh, Hillary's campaign kicked off, I, kind of came back to my consulting sort of strategy roots and was actually contacted by a friend of mine of many years named Kristen Haffert, who had been working all over the world on women's um, leadership, particularly in politics. Um, But called me and said, hey, Jessica, you know, I know you're going to go out on your own to do more of this work. I've been doing this work. Why don't we think about Uh, expanding the portfolio of who we're helping in women's leadership to think about gender more broadly, gender meaning how are men and women talking about these issues and really think about talking to companies more because as we all know, everyone follows the private sector. Everyone follows what the, you know, cutting edge tech companies are doing and that's where a lot of the funding comes from. Like when I think about running start, a lot of our initial funding resources were, were from Walmart and a number of other big companies, but, uh, we couldn't be that, you know, effective NGO without the support of the, of private, the private sector. And so that was her pitch was that was, was that to me. So it was really cool to kind of have someone say, Hey, like we need to do this together. And so we kind of envisioned mind the gap, which has evolved a lot over, um, the year, the two and a half years we've been doing work, but, um, Gratefully, the first year we got to do work with companies like Amazon and National Geographic. But what we do concretely is we uh, have two streams of our business. One is we go into companies or organizations that are really struggling with uh, retaining, recruiting women. Maybe they have a culture challenge around how women are seen. And we help to do kind of an audit of where the big gaps are. Because oftentimes companies might think they know where their problems are. And they're often right to a point. But we need to figure out like where a lot of the dynamics are. And then we help them figure out like where to start first. Because, um, you know, the one issue, here that a lot of times people feel, I think, overwhelmed by this stuff. Because there's so much to tackle. And it's true. So we try to get really concrete and really kind of like the low-hanging fruit where a company can feel like they have a small win, like this is changing and this is really helping to make the culture better. And I think the biggest thing I want all of you to hear who are listening is we're doing this because, you know, women and men should all be equal, which they should obviously be seen as equal, but we don't present it as this kind of touchy feely thing. We present it as, hey, you're losing talent. Your company isn't making as much money as it should or could. Um, You're missing the customer base because you don't have the voices of women in part, in big part, at your table, sort of understanding the, the market dynamics. You have all these really great research pieces and reality that when you don't have women and men working together in tandem in these organizations, in leadership, your companies aren't as strong as they could be. And I think a great example of that right now is the Me Too movement one of the biggest things we see in the research is companies that have more women in leadership are less likely to have an issue like this.
0: More than, yes,
1: yeah, I mean, it's just so, it makes sense, right? But absolutely. So, but more than that, you also see that there's less nefarious behavior in the organization actually on whole when you have more women in leadership. So I think uh, the way we see it as uh, what we do in, in the work is to say, hey, you want to achieve these goals, you want to make more money, you want to be, you know, this innovative, um, badass company, well, you're, you've got to tackle this piece of the puzzle well, and you can do all of those things.
0: Do you find that you're often having to pitch companies or yes. are companies willingly coming to you?
1: Absolutely. It's the first. Um, it's still a really big uphill battle to, for people to get this and i would say honestly that a lot of organizations um, talk about it being important but then when the rubber meets the road and the money is required to do what needs to be done they often will balk at that there is still this sort of i think particularly around the gender piece of this like women it's seen as like oh that's a volunteer thing or oh we just have to check this box and it's all fixed and it's so much more, I think, fundamental to the functioning of an organization. And it's like sort of very strong business terms. It's a competitive advantage to actually do this well. But companies, I think, by and large, don't see it that way. I've been lucky that a lot of the companies we've worked with do see it that way, and they tackle it that way. But by and large, it is a lot of education, um, which is why I wanted to mention, Kara, and I know i have been talking a lot here, sorry. but
0: <laughs> No, this is all good stuff that we need to hear.
1: Okay good. but the other dynamic that other kind of arm of our work is sort of this incubation arm because unfortunately, just to your question, we do need to sort of create new best practices and um, show proof of concept, if you will, on a lot of problems where we're super stuck. And so our incubation arm is where we identify funding, Um, Often we have a fiscal sponsor with a 501c3, we're a for-profit, but we'll partner with a 501c3 to basically um, build strategies where we feel like we're stuck. So we're doing a project in California with the support of PG&E and Facebook, so we have investors from the private sector. And the whole idea is, why is the private sector investing so little in a lot of initiatives Around women within companies and even externally, like giving to organizations. And so we're working on that project in California specifically because there's a lot of, I think, appetite for change there. Uh, But what we need to do is create these best practices that we can then replicate in other parts of the country. So that's the other kind of arm of work we do.
0: I was so hoping you were going to prove me wrong, but I was picturing, you know, within corporate structures, and it's been a while for me. I've been working on my own for probably a decade now. I guess my picture of what it is and what I hear from friends, you know, whether it's gender-based committees that are trying to implement change, whether it's committees for the LGBT folks, it always seems to be like the extracurricular activity for employees and not actually run by management. Bingo. Yep. And um,
1: I mean, I think, again companies want are slowly changing and getting it more and some really good organizations I would you know I would say case in point Amazon I worked with Amazon web services they were getting the importance of integrating these employee resource groups for African Americans and Latinos and women and LGBTQ into the metrics of how they thought about retention and retainment and some of the global um, important you know big bucket pieces that the company was working on. Um, so I think smart companies are integrating that met better, but a lot of them still see that as an extra extracurricular, just to your point. And part of it's the structure. So this is another really important point. So when we look at an organization, we see sort of two sides of the problem. One is we need to work on skill building And women building their confidence and navigating the reality of that workspace that's really important. And I would argue that would also include training men because that could be training men on not only their own leadership, but like how does this affect them and how do women and men work together better? I mean, we don't, not enough companies do any of that kind of stuff. They're doing like unconscious bias and sexual harassment to a point, which is great, but there's a lot more that needs to be done on that sort of training side. But then the, Yes,
0: because you can also address things like mentorship and sponsorship, which absolutely men can certainly be both of those for female employees.
1: A hundred percent. And like, how does that work? And why is this important? All of these educational pieces on that one side. But then on the other side, you have the structural stuff, right? You have all these systems that are in place. And I think part of the reason why this sort of um, extracurricular arms of the work aren't seen as important is because they're they're not billed that way. So they're physically often companies not built that way where it's, it's non-billable hours or it's extra pieces. I mean, it's not fundamental integrated into the core work that you're doing. It's seen as the soft side. But when you really look at the business literature, at the effective companies, those things that they're working on is actually the most important part of the company. So... It's it, that's where the disconnect is. It's you're valuing one side of the company to the other at the expense of like this is all this is all just kind of fluff and extra, and it's not. It's fundamental, and so that's a recalibration of the structure of how companies are even functioning, and that's huge.
0: It is so crazy to me that this is not a focus right and and maybe this is coming from a conversation that i had with a friend not that long ago who works for a major global bank and we were just talking and i was like how much does it cost to replace an employee like in a certain highly skilled field and when he told me like the range of what that cost i it was flabbergasted like what it would cost to replace that person if they leave yep and it's mind-blowing. Just that alone has to be such a drain.
1: Oh, yeah, we're talking upwards of half a million dollars for some positions, if not more. I mean, it's a yeah. lot of money. And so that's that's a great point to what we try to do is sort of present, hey, look, this, is, this is the rubber meets the road. This is a numbers problem you're having, right? <laughs> and so, you know, I think people, it's interesting because I do a lot of work in Europe. And I think sometimes Europeans get frustrated with, our pension to present this challenge or solution from a financial standpoint and from a hey, this is like a money issue and this is a bottom line I- impact issue, and you're not doing the best product. They're like, We know this is just the right thing to do, but the reality <laughs> is, we're, we're in the US. This is a you know, we are a competitive, uh, capitalistic structure, and so you have to, I think, and I guess some of my recommendations to people is. Think about it in the terms of the core, you know, the leadership of the company's goals, the outcomes, and what are they really trying to achieve? And then how do you make this piece of it, this diversity piece, which is, I know, a bit of a loaded term, but for, specifically for women, how is that helping you achieve that greater goal? And I think if we think more effectively like that, it doesn't feel like just a women's issue or something. It's just something that all of us can get behind. So... Um, That's what I get to do. So it kind of blends consulting with advocacy, which I love my advocacy
0: side of my, my background (laughs) is advocacy, obviously. So I'm never going to leave that. (laughs) Nor should you. And I love that you've made this blend. Like you have the strategy and the advocacy piece working together.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think there's a lot more companies like that, which is great. And I shouldn't be so critical of all companies because so many of them are embedding these values of, inclusion and belonging and um, nurturing and mentoring and leadership cultivation within the core goals of the company. So those of, those that do that, it makes it a lot easier, right? If that's a goal and that's a focus, then it's not checking the box to do that because it's core to the mission being achieved. Yeah, so it's exciting. But there's a lot of education to be done. And I, I wish companies really uh, were wanting to invest in this more than I find them to be doing or really deeply caring about it and seeing it as sort of a strategic imperative for them to do.
0: And I can totally relate. I mean, I feel like with the work that I do, you know, especially around helping people strategize their foundational health habits, right? And really come up with a plan that's going to work. That tail that when people are willing to get in the game is not usually until it hurts really bad. Right. Right. And I imagine in your world, it's when someone's about to lose their job like the metrics are deplorable or worse, there's been an incident that is now a PR problem.
1: Exactly. When it's already too late, it's all reactive. It's not preventative, 100%. <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, again, like I get to work with companies that are ahead of the curve on it and have and have seen the light and they haven't just been reacting to a bad thing. Um, but unfortunately, I would say I've had some very um, difficult conversations With people who are advising large tech companies, VCs, um, companies, you know, that are sort of leading a lot of our, I would say, our economy now, right, with this um, movement in the tech space. And they are not encouraging their companies to invest in the kind of work we do. They're encouraging them to ignore it. Not kidding. And they're, oh, yeah, it's really bad. It's really bad. Again, it's not everybody, but I'm pretty shocked by some of the conversations I've had about them worrying, oh, well, if we talk about this, the little project that we do, we're just going to get attacked in the press for not having perfect numbers. I'm sorry, no one's expecting anyone to have 50-50 right now. It's just, it's not, it's not, it's just, so be realistic and say, I think companies that are proactive and thoughtful about this and are thinking about how it's integrated and are smart. And, you know, that is, that's all we're asking for is that they're being intentional. You have to be intentional and make this change. Um, And I want to say one other thing that is really important because it's like, I find that people think that now that women are educated at the high levels they are, which is fabulous, which is such a big change, that somehow that translates to leadership. And it's absolutely not the case it's a core baseline of need to have women at that level of education. And we're great. I'm grateful that that has, you know, again, changed. We have women who are 50% of having law degrees and business school is changing a lot and med school, but it is not, those numbers are not translating to leadership. So it's a much different, um, sort of approach. That's just a baseline of need to get more women into leadership.
0: Got it. And that makes sense to me because honestly, industry by industry, that's probably going to look different based on where we are in that pipeline, right? To your point, like it might be 50-50 of women coming out of law schools, but it could be an industry like the air traffic controllers that you and I both know and love. Yes. (laughs) Right? I mean, they're functioning, I think, around 16 to 18 percent, Exactly. Of their workforce. So to expect that all of a sudden overnight that would become 50% is completely unrealistic for that industry right now.
1: Exactly. And having goals, I think that's something that's developing, particularly in that industry and others. Like at a certain date, we're going to hit a certain number, but we can't expect just the normal incremental change to happen because it's basically stagnated for 30 years in that particular industry. It's been the same number almost. That's crazy, right? So you have to be intentional and you have to look at why is this? What are all the dynamics at play? And again, it's a combination of of training, of skill, of support, and then this the structural stuff. What are the structural pieces that we have in place that are dissuading women, are not encouraging them to be here, are making them leave? And there's just a lot of cultural um, mis- um, interpretation of experience, meaning, like for example, a lot of people think women leave the workforce because they have children. The research does not suggest that at all. The research shows that In fact, women who have children are actually have a higher appetite to be even, I think, even more powerful in their work or have a real impact financially and otherwise, but they're leaving because of the inflexibility of their workplace. They're leaving because they're not supported or, um, I mean, I literally was talking to a woman who's who's, uh, on track to be partner of a large law firm the other day. And she said, you know, I'm one of the top associates at the firm. I bring in almost the most money of anybody. And I asked my, the partner team to consider having Fridays off or Fridays where I worked from home because it's just easier for me to not have to deal with a commute. I still am around, but I'm just going to build the same amount of hours. We're not even talking about a reduced workload here, just the ability to work from home one day
0: a week. And probably more productive hours.
1: Totally. And they said, no, there was nothing rational. There was nothing rational. I'll say that again about that decision that made absolutely no sense. There is nothing that they are financially going to be impacted differently, but they had whatever their decision was, which is probably wrapped up in some of their own cultural whatever they said, no, and they're going to lose that woman. She's going to leave. She's going to say, well, this is ridiculous. I'm going to go work for myself. And that's what women are doing. They're going to work for themselves. They're going to startups. They're not staying in sort of these these structured environments that have been inflexible to their lifestyle.
0: Or from what I've seen, stay in the position, hate it, have resentment build, have that take a physical, emotional toll, and then call someone like me because they're burnt out. Bingo. <laughs> it's funny you bring that particular issue up because that's something in the last decade has come up so many times in the work that I do. And I feel like it always catches me by surprise, especially when it's a woman who is considered a leader in her organization, is then having a private conversation with me, talking about how stressful it is to try to negotiate. Can I just come into work an hour later or a half an hour later so that I'm not a ragged mess getting to work because when the daycare drop off is doesn't really work well with when I need to be at the office. Right. Which to me seems like such a simple problem. But, you know, it sounds like you're hearing things like that in your world, too, that probably make you want to equally pull your hair out.
1: Yeah, it's just it's so short sighted. And I just, I don't think companies are going to be able to, they're not going to be able to survive, right. And they're continuing to sort of cut their left arm off, if you will, by saying, ah, oh, this is not matter, we're making money or whatever. They're going to start not to make money. They're going to start having reputational challenges. They're playing with fire, in my opinion. <laughs> They're inevitably going to fail. And that's what everything pans to from anecdote, from research. There's a deep 20 years of research now on the importance of gender diversity in the workplace and what it brings and what it fosters and the importance of it. It's just... Um, I think the burnout thing is a huge, a huge make for both women and men. I think women, it's just so much different though, because we still do bear so much the brunt of not just taking care of children, but elderly parents or um, maybe more capable in some ways of being the caretaker. I don't think completely. I love all the, I see so many more um, engaged stay at home dads or not even stay at home, but just dads who want to be there for their kids these days, which is so wonderful to see. It's so powerful important for the kids but not just it's not just a kid thing right it's also all these other dimensions of our lives that that get um that we have to kind of work on so yeah absolutely i think and all of us are i mean i'm i'm subject to this everyone is this is not something that because people like you and i are doing this stuff that we don't also experience
0: this ourselves so of course i wouldn't have come to this work had i not (laughs) (laughs) gone through your own yeah right? Like I had to hit burnout. Yeah. I don't know about, what about you? I mean, have you ever succumbed to the bullshit and the burnout?
1: (laughs) I like that. Um, I think I have recently been more frustrated with my inability to, I think, be more successful than I expected. I haven't been as successful as I wanted to see myself, and so that really that gnaws at me as a perfectionist and as a um, somebody who wants to do this work, who, who's passionate about this work, and knows the knows that the need is there. But I am I am candidly very frustrated that my work hasn't taken off even more than it has. Um, and so um, and then I think I well you know Kara, but the listeners don't. I actually have an eight month old so. <laughs> I don't sleep a lot.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Which then just fuels the anxiety and the, right. right? Like it yeah. becomes, oh. it becomes a little bit of a loop at this when they're that young still.
1: Yeah, it is. But it's also very life giving too. It's so fun. Um, when she just wants to giggle with me, it's like, Oh my gosh, this is amazing. <laughs> this little bowl of ball bowl, whatever you want to call it. I call her monkey, a little monkey of energy <laughs> that she, that she gives me. But, um, yeah, I, what do I do with it? I think right now I, I try to take a stock in what I have achieved in my work and be reflective of my own historical kind of arc. And that I I think someone said this to me many years ago in a panel that I think particularly for women, we don't have this like perfect arced curve that goes up, 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 and then we retire and we've been successful, which tends to be more like how men operate. We are much more like up and down and up and down and up and down um in terms of like then we have a kid and then we have our mom get sick or then our you know whatever happens and uh we have to take we take more of this back and forth break but the workplace doesn't support that recognition i have a good good friend of mine who just took 5 years off to help raise you know raise her children and she was planning on doing that for a while and she's a masters from columbia and she and i went to college together a brilliant woman. Um, but she wanted to do that. And that was great. That was her decision. And then her husband got horribly sick. Oh, oh yeah. And he's not, he's young. He's in his early forties and he, um, yeah, I mean, it's really, really, really devastating. And she had to go back to work financially and otherwise. And it was this big thing. And thankfully there was, there's these great programs where she lives, which help or help help to kind of give her this sort of boot camp of like, what do I need to do to get back in the workforce? I have been out of it for all of these years. So I guess all of that, it's a good, and she got back in and she got hired by a big tech company and she's doing great. Um, and I appreciate that tech company, by the way, even more for understanding that gap that she had, you know, and that she was still this very valuable person, even though she didn't have this perfect arc to her career. Um, so I guess for me, while I haven't taken a step back per se, even with kids and everything, I'm trying to give myself a little bit more sort of freedom to, especially this year in her first year of life, to to not always do everything to the level I
0: am normally to do. <laughs> yeah. Which yeah. I'm I'm sensing that we are kindred spirits in terms of why do something at a hundred percent when you can do it at a hundred and ten?
1: Exactly. <laughs> this is just isn't this normal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know somebody, I remember I was giving a speech down in New, New Orleans and I ended up getting the night before I got a um, heat stroke and I didn't know what it was or heat exhaustion because it was so hot. Oh no. It was horrible and I was sick. And then I had, but I had to train the next day and I couldn't not train. Thankfully I wasn't the only trainer. And my girlfriend, Katie said, Kate said, Oh, don't worry, Jessica, you're normal whatever, 50% is like 110 (laughs) for other people or something. I was like, okay. (laughs) I (laughs) have definitely
0: heard that comment directed at (laughs) me as well. Yes. It's hard to remember that sometimes though.
1: Oh gosh, it is so hard to remember that. And I think also we have an enthusiasm sort of piece of our energy that's part of what makes us really good. And not everyone has that and that's okay. I think that's a good, another thing I I like to share. We have to be authentic in our own sort of presentation of what's effective. And I think that needs to change also in the workplace is sort of appreciating different styles and approaches. And that's something I think women uniquely bring to the workplace that isn't um, appreciated as much and needs to start to change.
0: Yes. I feel like it's something that I've considered in my own practice and really have been mindful about it is not to create a cult of Kara, right? <laughs> like, I don't want this work, although it is me doing the work and asking the questions on the podcast or asking the questions and holding the space as more of a coach and strategist and looking for those solutions. It's it's like, I want it to be about the skills, but not necessarily about me with any of that, like fame sort of energy attached to it.
1: Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. And I think that tends to be much more of a w- many women's presentation of how they want to operate. So, and that's, um, I think part of it is pushing us, I think, to say, but that's okay for you to have a little bit about you too, because you're what you're also selling. I mean, if you weren't in your role, Kara, it is your skills, and it's what you do well, but it's also you. I mean, it's, it's both. It's not one or the other. And we just have to remember the historical context, I think, of where that all comes from. I mean, you really want to get to the real reality of it. I mean, we're based in English common law, which had men be the public figure and women were the private figure in a household men made all the outside decisions and women made all the inside household decisions and she, he voted for her she didn't have the right to vote because he had her best interest at heart and it was this sort of structure we're not that far away from sort of having to change that gratefully, change that sort of you know, framework where we also have that voice and we also have that, no we also have a public opinion and people can see us as leaders and And role models, and it's okay for us to take that on, I think, I mean, I think that we need to, it's always a little bit of both. Um, I, I don't know if that if that makes sense to you.
0: It does. And it certainly gives me pause and a lot to chew on after this conversation, especially growing up in Puritan, New England. (laughs) (laughs)
1: yes exactly where you really can't talk about how great you are no ego no ego but I
0: know and (laughs) impured in New England growing up as a Catholic
1: oh my gosh
0: (laughs) the double whammy
1: yeah you have a lot of guilt stuff going on (laughs) I'm a daughter of a psychologist and and a pastor so we'll just say I grew up with um a lot of advice and a lot of sharing of my feelings
0: <laughs> so you were able to work through some of this stuff probably a little bit more than I was
1: <laughs> yeah we didn't close it off oh yeah when you everyone knows when you come to the grounds household dinner like be ready to get into your deepest darkest you know question place from especially pastor larry my dad well let me oh. ask you um, what is the meaning of life you know i mean you kind of have to be ready for that question <laughs>
0: oh that is hilarious although I would kind of love it at the same time
1: oh yeah people find it very refreshing my husband loves it to a point then he's like can we just talk about like what's on television or like the weather (laughs) at a a point it gets to be a little a little tiring but it is it is refreshing and I feel grateful to have grown up in a family like that for sure it's wonderful
0: speaking of refreshing how do you stay refreshed and focused doing this work because you are trying to crack a big, huge nut. Um, <laughs> or nuts. Uh, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> like, uh, I feel like there's a joke there.
1: <laughs> well, I try to put things into perspective in terms of, I mean, what I, I think this was my mom who first had t- shared with me, this was an African proverb. She said, it was like, it's not where you're going, it's where you're facing And the idea was that I think our culture sort of promotes just do, do, do. And so I try to focus on where I'm facing and that it's sort of this life giving um, work that is what I find being meaningful. And so even at a young age, I I think I really embraced that where I had forks in the road and one place might've offered more money or something, which is important, but it wasn't everything. And I, chose the path that felt like it fit more into my sort of passion place. And so I think for me, what keeps me going and has kept me focused. And I think not sort of um, I haven't kind of pushed this stuff away because I think I have been really thoughtful about saying, okay, what part of this really is making me tick and let's keep focusing on it. And then you kind of push away the stuff is like not life giving um, that's hard as an entrepreneur, to be honest, that's the like kind of where my, my, sticking point though is now, because I have to also get paid to do my work. And maybe people don't want to pay me to do the work that I think is important. So I'm navigating that right now. That's a really hard part for me. And I think that's the thing for women. Like we tend to like start these really great companies and organizations and things that are so important and great, but they may not make a lot of money. I mean, that's a big, that's a big issue we see in the capital space for companies I am being a little generalizing here, but we just see men often starting companies that are like really good ideas. that will make a lot of money and maybe they're passionate just about starting a company, but not that product. And we get like into the product more We're like we want to offer the best stuff, like what's really going to change. And I love that purpose drivenness of women, but um, we often that gets hard sometimes to, you know, pay the bills. So, my point is is how do i i focus in on um what's life giving to me but also is practical and to always kind of retool what i'm doing so that's one thing that i do i think to to stay excited about it but then also practically having a group of friends around me that also share my work and i can call and they'll be like you're doing awesome jessica <laughs> <laughs>
0: When I'm like, Oh my God, those friends.
1: I know. I literally have done that like three times this week and the women don't even know me that well, but I know that they're the types to be like, Oh my gosh, I love what you're doing. And I'm like, Oh good. It's, I'm doing something, you know, don't say that (laughs) (laughs) because I'm doing this big project. It's so daunting. And then, um, I think, but no, but having that close circle of, of women around you and, and then just like, I I have to work out. I mean, this is very simple stuff. I know stuff you really promote, Kara, but I mean, I practice yoga, not enough, but that's a good place for me. Um, and just like going on a walk, like yesterday I was supposed to have a meeting and I just was like, I canceled the meeting at 4.30. I got home by five o'clock so I could walk my daughter on a long walk. My husband came with me too. And like just saying, you know what? The work's going to get done at another time and that's fine. And just yes. doing that kind of stuff. Otherwise I would have, constantly worked um so everyone has to have their own piece of that I think what works for them
0: that is so important and I think you know something like a walk I, I hear you sort of like yeah it was just a walk you know like I, I took this time off and took a walk but you know for women listening especially the women who are like focused on if it's not a five mile run or it's not an hour or an hour and a half long crossfit session it doesn't matter like those breaks are so important. And when you look at research around creativity and innovation, so many of the great thinkers and inventors in history walked. Like, yeah. They took a break, they dialed the focus back, they went into a diffuse mode of thinking. And that's where like the good stuff generates.
1: Oh, 100%. Yeah. Like the fact that sitting in front of your computer, you're going to all of a sudden come up with this epiphany kind of thing. Never, never, right. And so, yeah, taking that time, my Apple watch, I just got one a couple, like a month ago for my birthday and it it says stand up like every hour (laughs) or something. And I'm like, oh my God, I got to stand up. It's actually a really good reminder. I got to get up. I haven't gone to the bathroom. I'm just sitting here, you know, and then it gives you congratulations if you stand up every whatever hour or two that it tells you. (laughs) I'm like, yes, I made my stand up goal. I mean, little, little wins. That's, that's great.
0: Oh, it's so important. And, you know, one of the podcasts that I did recently with Barbara Oakley, who is created the most successful MOOC, the massive online open course online around learning how to learn. I mean, she's a huge advocate for the Pomodoro method, you know, work really hard and focused for 25 minutes and then get up for five to 10 minutes. Yeah. Walk around, put it away. (laughs)
1: Well, and that kind of stuff, like just going back to our earlier conversation about structure of work and how it's not fitting for women and all of these things and not appreciating, that's like we have the research that shows you're more effective not sitting there. And so, you know, obviously companies are toying and working on these different flexible arrangements and telecommuting has become bigger and all of these different things, which is great. But I think really continue to promote what is the future of work looking like and how do we cultivate better output and all of this stuff. This is a, it's a huge, a huge thing. It's all evolving. Um, so I think the smart companies are going to look at this stuff and they're going to say, Hey, let's, um, let's trust our employees. Let's trust our staff to do what's right. And, um, and they're going to be the most efficient for us. So,
0: and it's interesting. I don't know. Maybe you've stumbled upon research around this, but as we're talking today, and I'm thinking about other conversations I've had, and then I'm not sure if you realize. Like, I got my start at a different PwC, Price Waterhouse Coopers. Oh, yeah. Working in troubled debt restructuring and bankruptcy work, but so much of that was about FaceTime, and I'm I'm wondering. Has anyone actually studied how ineffective FaceTime is on a corporate culture? You know, Mm -hmm. that like parking someone in their seat, even though they're doing absolutely nothing and their brain is ready to melt out of their left ear. Right. From no use. But like that importance of leadership, just seeing you in your desk, knowing that you're available to call on at a moment's notice.
1: I'm sure there is something out there. I can't recall that I've seen specific pieces on that, but I absolutely agree with you. That culture is still very alive and well in different contexts, particularly, I mean, in my experience in politics, Capitol Hill is totally like that, where there's this, I mean, I, for six years, don't think I saw my husband before nine o'clock at night because he had to be at his office, not every single week, but a lot because there was this expectation he had to be there because that means he was doing work or whatever.
0: And you're a team player.
1: Yeah, it's just so weird. Like it literally makes no sense to me. So I don't know if we go off of our own gut and our own anecdotal evidence. I mean, my goodness, I'm much more effective being out there and connecting, particularly in most companies, which is relationship building and cultivation and all of those things. So I would just um, think a smart company would think more kind of thoughtfully about how different personalities work and different workplaces work. So I, I haven't seen that. But I, I would, I would wager to guess that you it isn't as effective. And you know, all of the, the cultural stuff that's changing a lot of offices around, you know, the open desk stuff. It's funny, because for some people that works really well, like an extrovert like me, but like for an introvert, it's like a horrible thing, right? That you have all these people who can come up and talk to you all the time. And you have all this noise, like, <laughs> It's like, oh, well, obviously an extrovert made that decision because she or he wants to like talk to people all day long and that's what they get their energy from. So I think it's a little bit personality driven too. Um, And the highly highly
0: sensitive individuals out there are like just wanting to hide under their desk, run away.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, um, so yeah, I just think rethinking all of these different dimensions, it's like really, it's kind of an exciting thing if you think about it, like what is the future that work will look like and how do we, again, for my, in my perspective, tap into the talent that we've been missing, you know, um, Hillary Clinton said a long time ago, when she was secretary of state, the largest untapped resource of talent in the world is women. And you look at the women broadly around the world, we're not working at the same labor rates that men are in the U S that's, we're almost 50, 50. Um, Mm -hmm. and in a lot of places it's about, we're about 38, uh, Percent of the labor force around the world, um, so you know all of our our talent and knowledge and perspective and all of these things in so many places are not there, are not are missing, and that's that's kind of my my hope is that people recognize this as being a real strategic imperative that we start to change um, and that we're working on this in all these different places.
0: And I'm a firm believer when I hear you say that in we need to be part of the change. So I'm wondering what can women listening do right now to help foster those kinds of changes?
1: Yeah, this is good. I love this question. <laughs> it it's a huge support. one.
0: Yeah. I, I get it. I realize what the gravity of what I'm asking you too. So
1: yeah. um, and, and it fits actually into one of the project I mentioned earlier, what I'm trying to do is sort of cultivate more of these change makers frankly and help people see that they can be these change makers so i would say a couple things if they want to what they should do or what they could do um i'll do a little list of things like first you want to think about getting the facts where like maybe where are women missing in your company what like what are the numbers is there a policy, a particular policy that you want to see changed? Obviously paid maternity and paternity leave is still an issue in this country being the only industrialized country in the world that doesn't have it mandated. Um, Each company is dealing with that uniquely. um, So that could be a particular issue. So you want to think about like what the facts are, what the numbers are, where are their policies and issues that you want to, or an issue that you really feel focused on. And I actually, I'm a really big advocate of like, Again, as I said before, there's so much stuff to tackle, like focus in on one piece, like those small wins or even a big win of one particular thing. It helps you to be strategic and focused, like focusing on like one area of thing that you want to change. And then I would suggest that people find other people around them that also believe that they want to make change in that way and are that they're not alone in the organization, that they can kind of share ideas and give examples of like what's happened And then I would encourage them to like, collect stories, collect anecdotes along with the facts of how it's impacting the company. You know, what are examples of that? So it's really tangible. So you're not like going and complaining to a boss and saying, I don't like this, because this is just a terrible thing. But to say, you know, we do not have this policy in place. This is how it's manifesting itself. This is what we're losing out on. Let me give you an example of how this happened recently. This is what I want to change. So it's really like, strategic and thoughtfully sort of done and then I would say be patient about making change but tenacious so like change is hard for people to take and it also is hard to come by but it doesn't mean you you shouldn't keep pushing for it because if you don't push for it it won't ever change so don't back down but also be um, thoughtful in how you're doing it so I think a lot of times and what we see in terms of catalysts for change inside of organizations, they're not the reactive people who are um, only beating the drum, but they are strategic and they've brought a team around them and they've navigated the internal politics and they've been thoughtful about how they try to present that change happening. Those are some ideas I would recommend.
0: Those are great ideas, and especially coming from an analytical data numbers facts kind of thing I love that it's like also just collect the stories collect the data you know n- keep a running I'm gonna use the the term bug list because I read this recently <laughs> I don't know if anyone out there has read creative confidence and it's by the two brothers that founded IDEO. Mm-hmm. and in it one of the little sidebars was keep a bug list and it's really like when you notice a problem when you notice something janky happening, you know, and maybe that's you got mansplained in a meeting, or maybe that's you recognize there's a a gap in the policy. But just keep that running list. And you don't have to fix everything. But you might start to see a trend of, oh, look, these three bugs could probably be fixed by the same solution, right, you know, or these overlap. And this shows a bigger systemic problem as opposed to just all of these little individual anecdotes. And that's really powerful stuff. And especially if you have it documented contemporaneously, and we all know in politics these days, contemporaneous notes are becoming a very important thing.
1: <laughs> no, I love the way you just explained that, Kara. That's exactly right. You really do almost, you create this pattern, you know, and it also is strategic if you think about it because you start doing a bug list and then you're like, oh, well, this also happened in this department or in this area and I can grab this person because she or he would really understand why that's problematic. And remember, remember, you always want to speak on the terms of the person you're speaking with too, that's important to recognize what's kind of motivating to them, what's going to motivate them to want to be a part of this um, change. And it could be different from from you. Actually, I, one thing I heard, again, uh, just this week, I was talking to this um, this gentleman who works with CEOs all over the country, and he basically is a big advisor to them. And he was saying, you know, in doing the work I'm doing, working at the highest level person, you would think that a CEO makes decisions almost exclusively based not only on the recommendations of his his or her board of directors, but also this practical advice and these data points and all of these things. But actually that's partly true, but most of it's because of some historical context or some experience they had, which is a little disheartening oh. to our strategic. But but I think you can take that for yourself and recognize that you need to put that into consideration. So you need to have all these data points and all of these things you want to change. And you also want to get to know who are the decision makers, what's motivating to them. What is their story around this? What could change their mind? So you have to be really thoughtful and strategic in all these avenues. It's not easy. This stuff isn't easy. And this is why things haven't changed more quickly, um, as quickly as I'd like to see. But coming together and discussing what's wrong is good. I want to see more strategic changes happen and I want women to feel empowered to be more strategic about how they make those changes because they're able to do it. And I think they have it but you know, we need to provide them with the resources too, which is something I'm working on.
0: Yes, and I think what also is important, I remember preparing for a speech about how to ask for what we're worth and negotiation. And I remember calling my mom before I did this. And I was like, did I always negotiate? And she was like, even as a little kid, you <laughs> came to me with what like the equivalent of a bullet point list of all the reasons I should say yes. <laughs> like you made it so Great. difficult to say no to you because you were already ready with like all the ways that I would counter it or not be down for this idea. Exactly. And so I encourage women listening, like I think... You know, you're saying, what I'm hearing anyways, is look for the decision makers. Look for the helpers, right? Let's not forget Mr. Rogers and all of this. Yep. Look for the helpers that can help lubricate the change you're going to make. And then also, like, have the facts together. Like, make it really hard for that decision maker to say no. Exactly. Let them work for that no a little bit.
1: Right. And then one way to do that is you have your Cadillac plan of what you really want, but then you also have your backup plan and you say, you know what? Okay, well, you'll say no to that. What about this? And you, to, to just what you said, you make it difficult for them to say, no, I was just interviewing a number of women in different sectors for this project on finding these catalysts for change. And, um, that's what one of the women said. She's like, this is how I'm effective. I have the political capital. I have the influence. I know who to talk to And I go with my recommendation. And I always have a secondary and tertiary or whatever um, concept in case they say no to the first two.
0: (laughs) So I love that. I like that. Yeah. So there is so much good stuff to learn from your work. And I encourage everyone listening to check out Mind the Gap and what you're doing Check out jessicagrounds.com and and see what she's up to and what she's speaking about. And check out Running Start. And Jessica, before you run off into the rest of your day, what do you most want LaVital Core Salon listeners to know or take away from our conversation today?
1: Well, uh, first, thank you, Kara, for including me in this. I think we talked about a lot of exciting pieces, and I appreciate being able to share kind of my perspective. I, I said this before, but I I can't um, undersell this important piece, which is I really deeply believe that the world will not be able to solve the problems that we have in our country, in our cities, in our homes, if women aren't seen and valued as equal leaders as men are today. And they aren't. There's still a Um, a different calibration of our perception of what women can do and how they lead, even with the surge of women, um, more women leading and standing up. And of course, the many role models that we have had. And so I would just ask each of you to recognize that and to recognize what can you do to contribute to that. And, and it can be as simple as, um, encouraging another woman in your life to, to do something that they are scared of doing or taking a risk they may not take to talk well of other women. I think we all need to support one another, um, and to mitigate against sort of comments that are made that are not, that are not empowering, that are degrading, that are, um, and so I think you don't have to change this massive, big problem, big stuff tomorrow but what we can do is little incremental changes in our lives and how we value each other how we value ourselves and I think that will really go a long way to kind of making this making this world frankly a better place where we all see um, a place where, where women and men are valued in the same way
0: thank you for that and thank you for the important work you're doing
1: thank you Kara I really appreciate being a part of your awesome awesome work and awesome podcast you have amazing women you've interviewed and I feel privileged to be a part of it
0: I'm so happy to have you here. Thanks again. Okay, bye bye. Wow. Jessica left us a lot of ways we can start taking some actionable steps to making our organizations, our workplaces, and our government more gender-inclusive for women. Hopefully your heads aren't exploding too much with ideas, because I wanted to remind you of a couple of things. One, the midterm elections are coming, and I want to encourage each and every one of you to get out there and vote. If you need to know when and where that's happening, you can sign up at vote.org to receive alerts of where your polling place is and all the important details you need to know. So check it out at vote.org. Also, at the top of this episode, I asked you to subscribe to Levital Vital Core Salon wherever you listen to podcasts. To make it easier for you, I also add links to most of the major podcast players, like Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Google Play, to the top of all of the show notes. So you can find them at Levital Vital Core Salon, and you'll see Jessica's show notes right there as well. From one grateful overachiever to possibly another, thank you for listening, thank you for subscribing, and thank you for sharing. Because I don't make this podcast alone, I want to give a big merci beaucoup to my producer, Craig Snyder, who's also my husband, my assistant, Darlene Victoria, and I want to thank Rishi Deer of Elephant Stone and the High Dials for the excellent theme song. Most importantly, don't forget, you deserve a life spiked with passion and slathered with joy. Don't let bullshit or burnout stop you.